We're talking about why church planting needs you. So we've been talking about church planting over the last few weeks. And um, on the first week, I outlined what we're going to be doing as a church. And that is to plant a new congregation uh, on a different location, probably close by, somewhere between Northcote and Alfington. And so we'll have two congregations running together. Um, that'll be what Mary Creek Anglican is, uh, Mary Creek Clifton Hill and Mary Creek somewhere else. And we're going to spend next year working on that plant. Um, and then some people from our, our church will, will go to be part of that. And that's an exciting thing that we're aiming to do next year. And, and two weeks ago, I talked about why church planning is worth suffering for. Because the idea is basically you know, can look very strange and a bit of a dumb idea, quite foolish, because, you know, it's a, we've got the coronavirus going on and also it's a recession. And so why would you do something like that? And Paul the Apostle says that, well, basically, this kind of thing does look foolish to, to a lot of people, but actually it's the wisdom of God. And while we might look weak as the church, that God actually is powerful when we do ministry in faithfulness. And then last week I talked to, I extended that idea and said why church planning needs the Holy Spirit power. Basically, Jesus said to his disciples, you know, before he ascended, go and do the mission to the world, bring, bring the gospel to the world, but don't start until I send you the Holy Spirit because you're not going to be able to do it. <laughs> you just won't be able to. So wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And then the Holy Spirit did come at Pentecost and they were able to go out and start their mission and work in power. And I said, we need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit brings power and conviction um, in our ministry. And also it brings joy to those who are involved. And this week we're going to talk about why church planning needs you. And we're going to be using this important bit from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16. So let's get into it. So to begin, I want to ask you the question, what do you think the church is for? What is the purpose of the church? What is the, the main reason the church exists? In C.S. Lewis's classic book, Mere Christianity, which I know many of you read, he has a chapter called, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And he says this, and I, I apologize for the old-fashioned gendered language. He says, it is easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects. In other words, things that it focuses on. Education, building, missions, holding services. And then he says, But the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. C.S. Lewis says, you know, making little Christ is why God became man and why God created the universe. And sadly, we, the church, can sometimes get focused on things that are less important than making little Christ. We can get focused on secondary things, running the programs, running services and church services, and, and, and lose sight of our main purpose, which is making little Christs. And one reason I love church planning is because it refocuses all of our attention on this main task of making little Christs. It's, it's an opportunity to refocus on mission. 
And to do this is to be a mature church. It is to be grown up. So it is possible for a church to be immature. A church that is immature is focused on its own needs and its own comfort. A church that is immature is easily swayed by crazy ideas and false teaching. A church that is immature is one that expects the the, the pastor and the staff, church staff, to do all the ministry and, and the congregation just wants to sit back and enjoy the ride. A church is, that is immature is one that does not want to be led. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he's talking here about wanting them to grow up into maturity of faith. He doesn't want them to be babies anymore. And in this passage, Paul explains how you can grow into maturity of faith. He shows the good gifts that God has provided for this maturity to occur. And he explains why maturity matters. Well, why does maturity matter? Paul says that we need maturity of faith because if we stay immature in our faith, we'll be a target for manipulation and false teaching that will lead us to the wrong place. Look at this description of immature Christians. They are people who are, it says, infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. So look at the three images, infants or babies or, or a ship at sea tossed about or like, you know, a trickster, a schemer gambling with loaded dice. The word, this word scheming literally translates from the Greek as crafty behavior, unscrupulous cunning that stops at nothing to achieve a selfish goal. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 11, Paul uses the word to describe people who are ready to do any trick to manipulate people for their own gain. So that's why the, the, the street scammer is used here as the image. And this is like a mixed metaphor, but you know, that's all right, it works. We can see what he's saying. And we can probably think of some contemporary examples of, of these immature Christians being conned by tricksters. I mean, the most obvious one to me is the, the way many Christians in America have been hoodwinked by Donald Trump, just totally leaving politics aside. I think, there are, thankfully, there are Christian leaders coming out now saying, you know, we shouldn't be getting behind this man. But, you know, just the, just the way they've been persuaded to get behind him is just crazy. I listened to the podcast, um, Let's Talk About Sects, S-E-C-T-S, Sects. And um, it's an Australian podcast that is award-winning. And the host, Sarah Steele, talks about, um, she showcases different um, cults and sects throughout the world and in Australia and and how people have been conned into joining them and the, the types of charismatic leaders who, you know, con people. And then eventually people are hurt and abused and it's quite a serious topic really but it's quite interesting to to listen to and the thing is in Paul's day there were lots of people around like this schemers around from our Roman 16 passage that we had read you know Paul refers to this he says to the church in Rome watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. 
So he wants the Christians in Rome, as we should want today for ourselves, to be wise and mature and to be able to spot these people, to be able to resist them. So to the church in Rome, in verse 19 of Romans 16, he says, Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Because if we don't do this, we'll be like a boat at sea, knocked about in the waves. So what we've got to do, according to Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 13, is learn to grow up. He says, When we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We must grow up. We have to seek to grow into maturity both as a human being and as Christians. And when we reach this maturity, look what happens. In verse 15, he says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Mature Christians should be able to talk about the Bible and talk about faith and God uh, with, with understanding, but also with a posture of love. In this politically polarized time of outrage, we, we kind of are used to now people disagreeing with each other, but also becoming abusive and angry and aggressive. And the thing is, just because someone might hate your views and be rude and aggressive to you doesn't mean you should be rude and aggressive back to them. And we've got this idea embedded in our church's vision statement. The first point of the vision statement says, imagine a church community who cultivates an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus with the no-religion tribes of Melbourne's inner north. This idea of open and charitable is about talking about the God of love in a loving way. Verse 16 shows us that as we grow into maturity as Christians, we truly become what we already are, and that is the body of Christ. He says that the body is the church growing up into the head, which is Christ. Um, it's a weird image of the body growing into the head, but it's, it works. You know, sometimes the weirdest images make the most sense. and <laughs> This is one example. And his, his point here leads us to the theme of what we're talking about today, which is why church plants need you. And he says every Christian is equipped to play a part in the whole community. Every Christian has a role in enabling the body to function. And in every case, our role must be done and motivated by love, characterized by love. So now let's look back at verse 11. We've jumped around these five, five verses. Let's look back at verse 11, see what it has to say about this. And, and remembering that he, he, he's going to list a few types of roles, but he's saying that everyone has a role to play. And, um, you know, we have to remember that the, the list of gifts here are not exhaustive. Um, and he has other gifts mentioned in other letters, which I'll mention briefly at the end. So the first... First idea is he talks about apostles. And, and the New Testament uses the word apostles in about four different ways I've been able to work out. First of all, um, the Bible says that all Christians are kind of like apostles. So Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent 
the word for um, he who is sent is apostolos, the word for apostles. So, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So, you know, John Stott, for example, makes the point that in a sense, all Christians are both servants and an apostle. All Christians are sent out into the world as ambassadors and witnesses for Christ in this sense. And in a sense, all Christians share in the ministry of the apostles. And this is something we really should think about as we step into church planting mode. But this general idea isn't probably what Paul's talking about here. Paul writes that Christ gave only some to be apostles. And this brings us to the second idea, which is probably what you're most most familiar with and probably the main kind of concept of apostles we should think about, which are apostles were those who were immediately commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. So this included people like the Twelve, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, and Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, and possibly there's one or two others, they're personally chosen and authorized by Jesus and had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. And it is in this sense that Paul is probably using the word apostles here, probably. They're at the top of the list as they are in 1 Corinthians 12 when Paul gives another list of gifts, he puts them at the top of the list. And so in this sense, there's no more apostles today. There are only a set number of apostles, those who witnessed the, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they won't have any successes because you had to have been alive back then. And so their authority lives on, I guess, through the scriptures now. It lives on in, in the Bible. Thirdly, the Bible talks about apostles in another way, which is those who, while they weren't immediately commissioned by Christ, they preached the gospel in close association with the apostles. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, verse 6, Paul links Timothy and Silvanus with himself as apostles of Christ. Or in Romans 16, verse 7, um, Paul talks about Andronicus and Junia as outstanding apostles. And then there's a fourth idea also that there were apostles of the churches. So you read in um, early church history about these apostles moving around These were messengers of the gospel sent out by the local church like a missionary or to perform some kind of special task. Now, theologian John Stott says, and, and, you know, important Christian leader, who's kind of like an apostle, I would say, argue that while there are no apostles in that strict sense of the, you know, witnesses of Christ's resurrection and, and commissioned by Christ, no more of those kind of apostles, he says, Today, there are people with apostolic ministries of a different kind, including episcopal jurisdiction, pioneer missionary work, church planting, itinerant leadership. And sometimes these people have a very significant ministry that changes the church landscape and influences a lot of people. Often they're not famous. Sometimes they are, but often they're not. But they're in the world doing ministry and, and doing it on a significant scale. Let me just tell you an example of one that you may not have ever heard of. Philip Yancey wrote in an article for Christianity Today, uh, the American magazine. In 2004, he, he talked about a trip that he went to China and where he met this 44-year-old Christian leader called Brother Xi. And when Brother Xi was a teenager, he headed up his local province's communist youth 
League and then served in the Red Guard. But then later on as a teenager, he became a Christian and he was kicked out of his home by his family and the Chinese government um, authorities started to try and hunt him down and, and find him to get him arrested. And so Philip Yancey said that Brother Xi ha- has to travel constantly, eluding police through narrow escapes. He says the house churches, recognizing his leadership skills, have prompted him so that he now, get this, um, the local church have got him now supervising 260,000 Christians in his province. Uh, that's what he'd grown to, have this kind of leadership now, just for some context, the biggest church in Victoria is City Life, and uh, that is about six to 8,000 people in the church, and they've got about 150 staff um, to manage that kind of number. So think about Brother Xi overseeing 260,000 Christians in the underground church in China. Incredible th- stuff. And there are these leaders like Brother Xi who are around with an apostolic gifting in that other sense. And I do believe God gives the church these kind, of, these kind of leaders with an apostolic gifting in this other sense, in this lesser sense, um, and, th- and he provides them to lead renewal. Well, Paul also talks about prophets, and this is another word that's kind of got layer, levels of meaning. There's the sort of a strict sense in which the Bible's talking about a prophet, And then the Bible also has these kind of lesser kind of ideas of what a prophet is. First of all, you know, essentially a prophet is a mouthpiece for God. And this is the main way the Bible uses the word prophet. A person who stood in the counsel of God, who heard and even saw God's word, and who spoke from the mouth of the Lord and spoke his word faithfully. So a prophet is a mouthpiece or a spokesperson of God a vehicle for his direct revelation. And again, in this sense, there are no more prophets today. If there were prophets in that sense today, we would be adding books of the Bible to the Bible. We'd appear, we'd, each year there'd be a new one because prophet so-and-so has spoken the word of God. But we don't, do we? So there's that kind of strict sense of the word prophet. But then there's also this other sense in the Bible talking about this concept of prophet prophets. The second sense, which is the early Christian prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, guiding and directing the church, especially in the time before the New Testament books had been gathered together for the church. So you can see this primary and secondary definition of the word prophet. And then there's this other sense of the word prophet also, this gifting that God provides the church today. So, you know, you could think about people who have a profound gift of teaching or biblical interpretation. There are lots of Bible teachers around, but there are these occasional people that come along that just speak and cut through the culture and people are just, you know, mesmerized and uh, turn to God and, and excited about what they hear. They just know how to apply the Bible in a way that cuts to the heart these people with this kind of prophetic gifting for teaching. Sometimes we can think about people who have an, an extraordinary ability to understand the trends of culture and the world and how church history is unfolding. Um, there are people around like that who speak. You often hear them speaking at conferences. And sometimes they, you know, oh, yeah, they're like a soci- glorified sociologist. And other times it's so prophetic what they're saying. And, 
uh, it, it helps guide the church um, in its mission. Also, there are people in the church who speak powerfully into the social sins of the day and speak the Bible into those issues. So you can think of famous people in history like Martin Luther King or William Wilberforce, who are like that, or Bonhoeffer. But in our own country, there are people like that now. You can think about people like um, Brooke Prentice or um, Auntie Jean Phillips or Tim Costello. Who, these people that speak and challenge the church, challenge the world about these social sins or whatever it might be. And people with prophetic gifting can sometimes use their gifts to bring people to um, repentance of sin in a profound way. And when there's been, in the history of revivals in the world, you see that occurring. You see that these are waves of repentance through these extraordinary evangelists and preachers who have got this perfect, prophetic gifting. And I'm sure that there are people in our church um, with prophetic gifting as well. Like I, I think of a person, and you might not, this might be strange to name this, but I think of a person like Robin Boozy, who might have a, a kind of a prophetic gifting in the sense that what she's doing is she's bringing people to, in a, in a powerful way, to be drawn to really thinking about violence against women and, and, and family violence. Now, you might think, but isn't that just, you know, doing kind of the work that, of justice work? Yes, but sometimes the impact is so extraordinary that you can see, the, you know, a gifting being used in a person. There's another concept of, of well, as well, and this is one which um, is, is talked about a lot in the charismatic church, and that is the idea of words of knowledge. This is where people with a prophetic gifting can have a sense that God is speaking to them about a certain situation, and that with discernment from the church leadership and the person who's receiving that, that word of knowledge, this can be encouraging. And this concept comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians 12, verse, chapter 12, verse 8, where he says, To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. And I know people with this gifting. And in fact, I've experienced this gifting myself. For some people, it might sound a bit weird, but it doesn't have to. And I'll explain what I'm talking about. About 10 years ago, I was at a Christian conference and I was just sitting. Uh, there, there had been a big session. There was a couple of hundred people there. There had been a big session, a teaching session or something. And at the end, I was just sitting on my own. And a person came up to me, a man who I didn't know and who had never met me before. And he said, hi, mate. You might think this is a bit weird, but I feel like God really wants me to say these two things to you. And I don't know what it means. But um, the two things are refugees and songwriting. And he smiled and, he, and I said, oh, thanks. And he walked away. <laughs> and, and in that moment, all of a sudden, I was hit with this wave of emotion and this great sense that God is interested and watching over me and Joe's life. Because at that moment, 10 years ago, Joe was managing the refugee program at... Um, the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, and had been working in refugees for, with, with refugees for about 10 years prior to that. And also at that time, I was working really hard on um, releasing uh, my band's first album, which involved writing songs and recording songs. And this was, you know, really exciting for me at the time. And, you know, this, this word of knowledge that this person brought to me in that moment, all it did was encourage me in this really deep way. And I've never forgotten it. 
But I've also been on the receiving end of a word of knowledge. And this is not the sort of thing that happens to me all the time, but I definitely remember it when it happens. And this was about eight, eight or nine years ago. I was again in a church service, in the middle of a church service, and I had this overwhelming, overwhelming sense that I should tell this guy called Michael Phillips that he should study the Bible at college and get ordained and become an Anglican minister. So I went and told him, I said, Michael, I, I don't know if you, what this means to you, but I really feel like God wants me to tell you to become an Anglican minister. And he looked at me and said, oh, you're not the first person to tell me that. Well, he's now uh, one of the staff at, ministry staff at St. Jude's Carlton, and he is an Anglican minister. And I'm sure that there would be many people in our church that would get words of knowledge in this sense. So it doesn't have to be kooky and weird. It can be just responding to a prompting from God. You can never be 100% sure it is from God. Maybe it's just your brain talking to you, your overactive imagination. But maybe it is from God. So you can see how prophetic gifting can have all these kind of different levels to it. And this is kind of what Paul is talking about. Well, the next, the next idea is the, the gift of evangelists. And these last few I'm going to spend less time on because they're more familiar to us. Evangelists announced to the surprised world that the crucified Jesus was risen from the dead and was both Israel's Messiah and the world's true Lord. And it's true that, um, you know, all Christians are called to tell people about Jesus and, and to tell people the good news about Jesus. But people who have the gift of the evangelist are doing something different. These people have an amazing ability to win people to faith. They are always forming friendships with people outside the church and they often have an amazing gift of explaining the gospel in a clear and persuasive way. And there are definitely people in our church with this gift. And if this is you, please use your gift. You know, don't hide your light under a bushel. There's a great need for gifted evangelists today who will pioneer new ways of exercising and developing their gift. You know, and if we're going to do a church plant, we really need people with those gifts. Well, the last two gifts are shepherds or pastors, as the NIV, I think, translates it, but it's literally the word shepherds. And, um, you know, we've got shepherds and then we'll have teachers. And what... um the Australian slash South African church leader, Alan Hirsch, has made this point for a while that perhaps, in a sense, our church has struggled with mission, the Western church, in the last sort of 50 years or so, because we've overemphasized the shepherds and teachers' role in the church and underemphasized the apostles, prophets, and evangelists' role. And so he's saying, you know, every church puts all its eggs in the bark basket of shepherds and teachers. And he's not saying they're not important because he, he himself has been a shepherd and a teacher. <laughs> and um, certainly I don't want you to hear me saying that. Basically, Alan has been pushing um, the, the church in its mission to say, hold up all of these gifts as you think about your mission to the, to the world. But basically, shepherds are the pastors that care for the churches and they do this by teaching. And some people have said maybe shepherds and teachers should be put together as one concept. By, by pastoral care, they do this by, by being a moral guide, by serving and leading the congregation they shepherd. And lastly, the, the concept of the gift of teaching is there 
you know, and, um, you know, John Calvin made the point that you, you should separate them because not all teachers are shepherds, but all shepherds should be teachers. God provides teachers to the congregation to feed the congregation with the word of God. So with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, God provides these gifts and other gifts, but these gifts seem to be especially useful for starting new churches and planting new churches. And, and we do have these gifts in our congregation and we should make use of them. There are other gifts you would know about, and I'm not going to go through them all, but gifts of wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discerning spirits, tongues, interpreting tongues, administration, helps and hospitality. We don't have time to go through them all now, but you will, all of us will be gifted in different ways in, in these, in, in one or, or more gifts. And what God wants is for you to get involved in ministry. And this is why church plans need you because we really suddenly discover how important these roles are especially when we're starting new churches this is how we grow into maturity says paul and and i want to say this is how we're going to be able to plant a second congregation see paul had his huge team of helpers co-workers and supporters um, we've already mentioned earlier in the service, um, Phoebe, his deacon and messenger who brought the letter to Rome. There's a Priscilla and Aquila who are co-workers and leaders of a house church. Urbanus and Timothy who are also co-workers. Andronicus and Junia who were outstanding amongst the apostles. Um, two women, Trophina and Trophosa and Persis, who Paul said, work hard for the Lord. And also he had help with administration, you might have noticed at the end. Tertius, who, who penned the letter as Paul dictated to him. Uh, and Gaius, who provided accommodation for Paul at uh, different times. And then uh, I love the, the last one, Erastus, who's mentioned, who, who worked for the government as director of public works. But you can imagine how in such an important role he would have had for, for the church. And we certainly have people like Erastus in our church, don't we? For us to be a mature church, a church that is going to establish a second congregation, we all need to get involved. We need to be drawing on the gifts that God has provided us. We need to realize that God has gifted each one of us in different and amazing ways. And as we head towards this church plan, I encourage you to think about how you're going to step up and step forward and serve. God wants you and we need you.